This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, looking back on the week in media and journalism here and around the world. And a week ago you probably hadn't heard of Gaby Baby, a new documentary that explores the world of children with same-sex parents. But I'm sure you now have, and that's all thanks to the Daily Telegraph. The New South Wales government has now banned schools from showing Gaby Baby. We'll be talking all about that. Also, the very well-publicised murder of two television journalists in Virginia in the US, while in Egypt, a court has sentenced Australian Al Jazeera journalist Peter Grester and his two Egyptian colleagues to three years in jail. Well, joining me in the studio here is Kate Doak, freelance journalist and a board member of the Safe Schools Coalition. Hi, Kate. Good evening. On the line, we also have Gina Rushton, journalist with The Australian. Hi, Gina. Hi. And Michael Safi, reporter with The Guardian Australia. Hi, Michael. Hey, Jack. Now, to have your say on the issues we're discussing tonight, do get in touch through Twitter. Our handle is AU. All letters, no numbers. Well, last week, the Daily Telegraph headlines shouted gay class uproar. Parents outraged as Sydney school swaps lessons for politically correct movie session. But what was all the fuss about? Well, Burwood Girls High School had arranged a showing of the Australian documentary Gaby Baby, which is a look at the lives of families with gay parents made by a former student of Burwood Girls, Maya Newell. Well, it wasn't long before the New South Wales Education Minister, Adrian Piccoli, announced a ban on schools showing Gaby Baby during class time. And it turns out that neither Piccoli nor Premier Mike Baird had actually watched Gaby Baby, even though it was shown at Parliament House the night before they intervened. Well, the cherry on top of the Daily Telegraph's coverage was columnist Piers Ackerman, who wrote that the film Gaby Baby was a political film and screening it during class time was therefore in complete breach of the New South Wales Education Department's guidelines. I spoke to Piers Ackerman a little bit earlier. Well, I could only go what's on um, this woman's own website about the film, uh, where a review of uh, there, and I presume it's posted with her approval, says that the film is intrinsically political. Now, that means that it is in direct contravention of the departmental regulations. Uh, the regulations regarding uh, the screening of uh, material in schools is, is very, very clear. There can be no overtly political material uh, uh, screened in schools. Um, there, you know, the, 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 the regs could not be more transparent. Um, uh, So I I really am relying on what this uh, documentary maker has uh, permitted um, uh, to be posted uh, about the film. I've had a look only at the trailer um, and and at the website, as I say. Um, if If it is overtly political, then it breaks the rules. And fortunately... After this was brought to the attention of the minister, um, it, it, uh, the, you know, the minister said, yes, it does breach the rules and therefore the school sh- shan't uh, 
uh, fillboard ban. You talk in your article about political front groups pushing a fantasy that homosexual families are the norm, um, and indeed you go into the question of what is normal, and you've said that in the 2011 census that same-sex couples represented about 1% of all couples in Australia, which, in, in, which you take to indicate that they don't meet the definition normal. Uh, this might seem like a crazy analogy, but isn't that a little bit like saying, well, since apples only represent 1% of fruit, that they're not normal fruit? No, of course not. That's that's a you're, you're right. Your analogy is rather crazy. Um, they're all, all fruit. Uh, there's, but the, the to say that one uh, percent uh, of um, married one percent of couples uh, represent all couples is is uh, is just not so. I mean, I'm talking from a purely statistical basis. And uh, if you look at the uh, 2011 uh, census, you, you see that it has quite a, an interesting breakdown on people who have told the census that, one, they're in uh, same-sex uh, unions or relationships, and two, uh, on the number of children across Australia who are in, uh, uh, in same-sex households. And that was uh, zero... 0.1%, which is sort of one in a thousand, I believe. That's Piers Ackerman, columnist with the Daily Telegraph. Kate Doak, what does it say about the power of the media when this film was banned by the New South Wales government from being shown during school hours, almost immediately after the telly raised the topic? Well, I think it shows that basically with any government in New South Wales, as soon as the ter- I mean, Telegraph basically gets in and um, uh, says something... Um, yeah, they basically try to please the Telegraph no matter what. So in that regard, it's not um, it's not surprising that this has actually happened. Um, I sincerely disagree with Piers Ackerman. Um, gay and lesbian couples, their families, um, transgender um, people and their spouses and their children as well, same thing with intersex and queer people and all of that, um, we are normal. We are part of the community. We are people who just want to get in and like um, uh, work hard in everyday life, enjoy life for what it is, and just be kind to our fellow human beings. And when somebody in a prominent position such as Piers Ackerman says, well, like, right, these people aren't normal, and then doesn't get in and like um, quantify how exactly we're not normal. Like, it's very disappointing, but it's also extremely dangerous as well. Like um, uh, on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald, for example, this morning, there was quite a large amount of discussion in regards to the impact of suicide. Now, if um, if getting in and producing a documentary that helps like um, uh, kids to realise that, hey, LGBTIQ people, we're just another part of society, we're normal, there's nothing wrong with us whatsoever. If a documentary like that, which can stop people from committing suicide, is going to be criticised, then we've seriously got to ask, where are we going as a society and how can we put checks and balances into place so that um, different commentaries such as what we've seen from both parts of... um, uh, the Daily Telegraph and Piers Ackerman and also other media outlets as well because this isn't an issue that's solely like um, uh, focused on News Corp. There's been other like media outlets who have caused a stir in regards to LGBTIQ issues of late as well. If we can't get in and 
like find a solution to this, we need to ask some serious questions about who we are and where we're going forward. Michael Safi, did the quickness, the swiftness of the government's response, did that take you by surprise? Look, I must say it did. I mean, you know, there, I think there's this old perception that the media, particularly the tabloids, have this power where they can sort of say jump and the government says how high. But then we also have this sense that, you know, with the proliferation of, of social media, among other, among other sorts of trends, that perhaps that influence is declining. I mean, I, I'm in Victoria at the moment. Um, and, you know, I mean, the, the Herald Sun down here were editorialised really strongly against um, the, then, the then Andrews opposition on issues like uh, the East-West Link, um, on Daniel Andrews's kind of supposed union ties, um, and they, you know, they went out on on a campaign that was similar to one the one the Telegraph uh, ran at the time of the federal election. The kind of you know we need Tony. It was that, that in that style, um, and yet Daniel Andrews sort of went went down in flames. And so it was, there was this sense that you know perhaps the kind of influence of, of the kind of um, big daily sort of tabloids was waning, and, and yet you know by before 10 a.m. Um, Adrian. I actually heard it live. Adrian Pickley called 2GB um, and said to them, actually, I've changed my mind and, and this, this thing won't be going ahead. And um, up against a pretty critical uh, DJ on the program too, you know, he, he had to sort of defend against these claims that even showing this documentary outside of school hours was still pushing, a, you know, a supposed gay agenda. And he was saying, well, you know, the film is, is, is not, you know, it, it's not really political and it's supposedly just focusing on these kids and, you know, nonetheless, he still had to kind of pull the film. And so, I, yeah, I must say, I, I was surprised that the papers kind of had had that power. And I think given the backlash, I, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, whether they, they regret having, you know, not, for example, seen the film themselves before they decided what they would do with it. Gina Rushton, you're a journalist. You're also our resident Burwood girl here. How do you think the students back there have handled all the media attention? Um, I think they've handled it really well. Um, I know that um, most of the ex-students and friends who've been posting on social media are pretty thrilled that uh, that was going to be aired at all, to be honest. Um, you know, um, we're at Purple as well. It's not some politicised fringe movement. It's about, you know, being proud of who you are. And I think looking back on some of my experiences at Build Girls, I mean, we had an incredibly, you know, heteronormative um, phys ed and sex ed experience, and I think that would have been pretty isolating for you know, LGBTIQ students. So the screening of a film that, you know, celebrates acceptance um, and, I, and diversity is something that I think would have been awesome when I was there and, um, you know, probably would have been awesome now too. <laughs> Kate, indeed it says on the Gaby Baby website, a review is there, it describes the film as being intrinsically political. Is that political because it's trying to achieve some sort of political change or is it just political because the lives of gay families, as close as they can appear to any other family, have been so politicised by the media? I think that in the current political climate that we've got here in Australia in regards to any form of like um, LGBTIQ rights, um, anything that comes up is undoubtedly going to be political in some way, shape or form, even if it hasn't been produced um, in that particular um, manner, like with a political focus, it's still going to come across as political because we're at a crux at the moment, like really in regards to LGBTIQ rights here in Australia, like um, uh, we've got the marriage equality movement, which is going forward. We've also got a debate here in New South Wales coming up in regards to transgender people and the different statement, different steps that we have to um, take in order to um, 
to basically get our birth certificates changed and all of that. So there's so many different things which um, in some areas of the community like are viewed as being controversial, which are coming up um, quite frequently at the moment, both at the state and federal level. So any time that like anything LGBTIQ comes up in the media at the moment, it's undoubtedly going to be viewed as being political. But I don't think that's necessarily like a, a bad thing that some things are being viewed as political because um, if we can't like challenge our political leaders to go like, right, okay, um, where do you stand on some of these issues? Are you willing to like get in and support people who are different to whom... Um, like you are in terms of experiences like um if we can't ask our politicians that well um it's a bit pointless like um uh like discussing some of these things because otherwise like how are we going to move forward if we don't go like right we need to figure out like what exactly we need to do with all of these different things so we can get an outcome for the people so that they don't hurt themselves so that um like, yeah, there's um, a lower level of discrimination present within the wider community. Gina, do you suppose that you could have a documentary about the lives of gay parents and their children that wasn't political, that was just that? I don't know. The word political is interesting because when you think about all the different things you're exposed to in high school, you know, political or otherwise, I mean, there's, there's a lot of um, stuff that you're shown that's not necessarily in the curriculum um, that is, you know, pushing a viewpoint. I think it's interesting that the, the original Daily Telly um, article quoted a reverend because I just remember sitting in assembly and, um, the, you know, we we there were a lot of um, church representatives who, you know, it's a secular school and church representatives who were given prime assembly time to kind of um, recruit, I guess. <laughs> um, and there were definitely things we were exposed to that were, were super political and, um, yeah, Michael, what do you think? Would there have been a way for Maya to make her film that didn't end up being branded political and suffering the consequences of that? Well, I mean, my understanding is she didn't sort of... It, it, the film itself is not, not even that political. I mean, from, from you know, what, what I've... And again, I've only... My, like peers, I've only um, seen the trailer. Unlike peers, I haven't then gone and written a comment piece about it. But look, I, I think that, um, you know, my understanding of the film is that it sort of invites you to kind of empathise with the experience of four children. And if... You know, if, if that invitation to empathise is offensive to your politics, I think you have to sort of re-examine your politics. So I, I, I don't see how that's something that, you know, we should be careful of showing kids that that, that actually some people have a different experience to you, and they're okay, and 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 it's okay that they're different. And I mean, if if, if that's something that clashes with your worldview, I think it's your worldview that's the problem, not the documentary. Now, a couple of weeks ago here on Fourth Estate, we asked why more Australian news organisations don't take a company-wide stand on clear-cut issues like marriage equality. Well, it seems today The Age has done just that in Melbourne, Michael, where you are. In an editorial, they write, this newspaper takes it as self-evident and unassailable that families formed by same-sex couples have the same rights and responsibilities as other families. Do you take that to be a sign that marriage equality is perhaps ceasing to be a divisive issue for the Australian public? Well, I mean, I think if you look at any, any opinion poll in the last five years, I mean, it, it isn't a divisive issue. It's a divisive issue in our politics. But, you know, I mean, polls have shown that the support for same-sex marriage is as high as something like 70%. I mean, how many issues, really, are you finding that sort of consensus on? I, I, I think uh, our institutions, including, including our media, have a lot of catching up to do with where the Australian public are on this issue. What do you think, Kate? 
I think it probably goes further than marriage equality, to be brutally honest, because if you look at all the different media outlets here in Australia, very few of them, if any, have a LGBTIQ style guide um, in regards to like what sort of language to utilise in regards to um, LGBTIQ stories, such as marriage equality, such as um, what happened recently between um, uh, group captain Catherine McGregor, Mark Latham and the um, Australian Financial Review. So I think that there's a lot of opportunities for the media to improve the type of coverage that we do um, of the LGBTI community as a whole. That said, in regards to marriage equality specifically, I don't think it's a divisive issue anymore in regards to um, the Australian community per se. In regards to political fundraising, however, I think that that's where there's a key problem at the moment because um, you've got different like unions within the Labor movement and you've also got different parts of the um, Liberal National Coalition who are basically going, well, we don't want to like see this particular thing happen, so we're just going to start throwing as much money as what we possibly can um like towards making sure that some of these things don't happen. Now, that undoubtedly does have an impact on politicians as much as what polls do. And like, yeah, we we need to take that into account with um, different debates going forward. I think that what the, um, uh, the various Fairfax papers have been doing of late, um, it is a credit to them like um, for them to be getting in and saying, like, look, we need to have more diversity, both um, uh, like within our coverage of different stories and within society as a whole. But I think that we also need to reflect on what we've been doing within the media and just go like, right, where else can we improve? Not just editorially, but within our workforces as well, because there aren't a terribly large amount of like um, uh, LGBTIQ people within the Australian media. Like, There's only a handful of us um, in the transgender community who work within the media here in Australia. Meanwhile, over there in the United States and in um, the United Kingdom, for example, there's a lot more than what we've got here in Australia. So we need to reflect on what exactly is going on um, and try to correct those things, not just in regards to marriage equality, but also in regards to other LGBTIQ. TIQU rights. You're on Fourth Estate with myself, Jack Fisher, and I'm joined by Kate Doak, Gina Rushton, and Michael Safi. Well, last week out of Virginia in the US came the tragic news that a gunman had killed two reporters from a local television station, Alison Parker and Adam Ward. Well, the Guardian writes that the gunman, Vesta Flanagan, himself a former reporter, shot his victims in a manner calculated to puncture the membrane between news and its consumers. That's because the shootings occurred while Parker and Ward were in the middle of live broadcast and Flanagan immediately uploaded a video of him shooting his victims onto Facebook, taken from a body camera that he was wearing at the time. Well, the Virginia shooting has been called the world's first social media murder, which may or may not check out depending on how important the time frame is. We've certainly seen the deaths of James Foley and others at the hands of IS play out on social media. But the immediacy of the gunman posting his body camera to Facebook was quite startling. Michael, what new challenge do you think that that contains for the media? Well, I think it's a very, it's a very difficult one. Um, you know, partly, I think, I think it'll, you know, each each outlet will make its own decisions. But I think it could go either way. I mean, for some media, they may say that you know these videos are out there. So for the people who do want to see the kind of gory detail, and I can't imagine why you'd want to, but for those who do, they can go out there and they can see it circulating on Facebook or on Twitter or whatever. And so. 
Therefore, you know, it doesn't have to be splashed on the front page of the Telegraph or the, the Guardian or the Australian or whatever. But, um, you know, perversely, others might say that, you know, because now people can see it, because it's out there, it's now part of the story. And so we aren't kind of fully reporting the story unless we, we you know, include this, um, you know, include this footage. So I think, I think it's difficult. And I think news outlets will have to make, it will only complicate decisions that are already very difficult around tragedies like this one. Some have questioned the fact that the deaths of uh, three black men, Eric Garner, Walter Scott and Tamar Rice, killed by American police had been shown on the news in the US while the deaths of these two white TV journalists was deemed too graphic. Do you think there's one standard for some deaths and not others? I think that, like, with that, there is a double standard in some ways um, in regards to um, the state of racial politics um, over in the United States at the moment. Um, However, having not seen any of the video footage from any of those particular um, uh, deaths, like... I wouldn't feel comfortable like making a statement in regards to that um, purely because um, there are levels of um, uh, graphics from firearms related um, deaths which some can be very 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 graphic um, while others um, you might think that a person has been hurt but they've been hurt like um uh extremely badly so like yeah um i'm reticent to make a call on that one also with that as well um i have actually experienced the family side of things with um uh with firearms related deaths as well because of um uh a couple of incidents that happened both last year and in 2013 so on a personal note I do not like um, uh, firearms. Um, So, like, yeah, that influences how I view this particular story a lot. Gina, one of the most unsettling things, I think, about this murder was to witness the reporter, Alison Parker. She was completely unaware that she had this gun pointed at her during her live broadcast. She was clearly absorbed in doing her job, I suppose, in a way that you can only be when you're on live TV. Uh, The live cross is very popular in recent years, but it does have all sorts of risks, I suppose, especially for female journalists. Would you agree? Well, I guess I can only speak as a print journalist, but um, I'm sure it's like anything else um, in that, you know, um, with any risk. I guess the correlation between professional risk and being a woman, I'm sure it um, transcends into the media as well. But I was also just going to say that I was just thinking when you referred to um, the Virginia shooting as the first social media murder, I think it's probably setting a pretty horrific precedent um, because I think, if anything, it brings, you know, the scope of social media into sharp focus because I'm not sure that seeing these atrocities play out in real time actually sort of connects us to the tra- trauma or, it, you know, um, reduces the suffering to something as cursory as the medium it's broadcast on, if that makes sense. So, you know, Twitter being the prime example. Michael, is there any way we can sort of mitigate that sort of uh, tendency for media to be a place, I suppose, for some people to get their very worst kind of fame? Look, I mean, I, I don't think so. I think the kind of, I think people, you know, we're, we're quite, we're such a media savvy age. And I think people are so aware now. I mean, just from, from kind of growing up around so many different forms of media about how to, how to manipulate it, how to get their story out um, into the public sphere. I mean, I think people are more kind of media conscious than they've ever been. And you know, I think we're kind of, um, I think as a society, we're needing now to learn, I guess, how to restrain ourselves from seeing certain things. Because for the first time in our history, 
you know, it's not the media who decides what the public sees. The public can go on social media and decide for themselves. And so, you know, as, as I think kind of we're having to decide, we're having to develop a new muscle, which is to say that, you know, I, I could go and see footage like this. It's within my reach. And if I wanted to, it, it would be two or three clicks away. But I have to sort of consciously uh, choose not to. Um, and I think that's a new thing. And we're sort of grappling with it. And, you know, it's understandable that, that kind of in the early years of this sort of proliferation of social media, that isn't going to be so easy for people. But I wouldn't be surprised if the way that we consumed kind of the media around tragedies like this one um, becomes more sophisticated as we go on. And as we realize that, that you know, and, and I suppose this is also goes to your other question of why this footage wasn't shown. I mean, it wasn't shown because it was part of the killer's plan for us to see this in the same way that it's part of ISIS's plan for us to see the propaganda that they put out. And so we have to somehow develop this muscle that says, I know I can see that, but I choose not to because then I'm playing into these sorts of you know, nefarious plans or nefarious schemes that are being hatched by people like this gunman or by, by terrorist groups overseas. You're on Fourth Estate with myself, Jack Fisher. I'm joined by Kate Doak, Gina Rushton and Michael Safi. Well, over the weekend came the shock news that three Al Jazeera journalists, including Australia's own Peter Grester, had been sentenced to three years jail time for their reporting in Egypt 18 months ago. Peter Grester has already spent 400 days in an Egyptian jail before he was sent back to Australia earlier this year. Now, he and his colleagues, Baha Mohammed and Mohammed Fami, have been found guilty once again after a retrial that they hoped would clear their names. Michael, do you think this was a surprise? Because there was no substantial change to the judiciary and no new evidence was considered. Did people expect a better outcome this time? I mean, look, I mean, you make a couple of good points there. I suppose the, the kind of other thing is there was no actual evidence presented to begin with. I mean, some of the things that we saw in the case were sort of videos of horses running in meadows and, and, and sort of uh, footage of, of Peter Grester, his reports from other parts of Africa. So, um, and a music video. Gotcha. Somebody yeah, exactly, I used to know. Exactly, yeah. So, um. But I think despite all that, it was a surprise because I think there was a perception that the political pressure that had been, um, you, know, you know, put on the Egyptian government by, by people like Julie Bishop and Tony Abbott um, did result in Peter Grester um, being allowed to, you know, re- return home and, and that that meant that there was a kind of a, a turning of the corner in Egypt and that these, these three men would be um, released. But I suppose what it reminds us is that I mean, Egypt remains a kind of deeply troubled society. And, and, and you know, these, these th- the tragedy that's fallen, you know, at, le- at least the two of these three men who are still in Egypt, um, you know, is one suffered by many. I mean, we saw, for example, um, earlier this year, something like 183 alleged members of the Muslim Brotherhood who were um, sentenced to death. And now, I mean, there's no way to, to, to make sure that sort of the judicial pro- processes have been followed correctly when you're sentencing 183 people to death. And so I think this rest of case or the kind of case of these Al Jazeera journalists is one among many kind of deeply kind of corrupt cases in Egypt. Yeah, Gina, one uh, aside from this, I suppose, the Associated Press tweeting about Mohammed Fami's barrister, Amal Clooney, renowned human rights lawyer, of course, describing her as George Clooney's wife. Clear-cut case of sexism, do you reckon, or just pandering to a Hollywood-obsessed audience? <laughs> um, look, I think um, as far as sexist tweets go, um, you know, it's it's not the worst I've seen, but um, you know I think I mean he's the husband to a you know multilingual author in QC, so um, yeah, it was pretty ridiculous. Peter's expressed concern about the future of his career being on the line. How crippling do you imagine that's going to be for a foreign cor- correspondent like him? Oh, it'll be a very very big challenge for him because 
if he goes anywhere that has a extradition treaty with Egypt, for example, he could get like um, arrested and then sent back to Egypt. So it's definitely like a, a major issue for him. I think that there's ultimately going to be a lot more appeals and a few other different things to go with this particular case before um, anything further happens. And um, my only words um, after that are basically good luck. Peter, good luck. You've got Australia behind you. Good luck, Peter. Well, we're out of time on Fourth Estate. Thanks to my guests, Kate Doak, Gina Rushton and Michael Safi. Don't forget you can listen to our podcast on 2SCR.com and iTunes, and you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. My name's Jack Fisher. We'll be back at the same time next week. Listener.